I pondered all these things and how men fight and lose the battle. And the thing that they fought for comes about in spite of their defeat. And when it comes, turns out not to be what they meant. And other men have to fight for what they meant under another name. Under another name. So that is the name of this podcast. And in today's episode, Joe and I are going to be talking about the left um, and what the left should be for. Um, And I guess the reason for having this conversation uh, at the moment is, well, there are people within the Labour Party. There are lots of people within the Labour Party that think what the left is for is really just about winning elections. Um, And Joe and I have been on a political journey recently. Um, Just just so everybody's aware, I used to be a a conservative. If we we went back 10 years, I'd be a card-carrying member of the Conservative Party, a Thatcherite. And I now regard myself as a democratic socialist, so I've been on quite a political journey. Um, And Joe, you would describe yourself, if you went back five years, as a melt. Yeah, I would say my politics was empty. I don't I don't think of myself as someone who really had a politics, even though I was somebody who really followed politics. I certainly had opinions about it, but I think it was um, intellectually pretty empty. And it was very much focused, as you described, James, on the the um, the strategic game of how to win an election as opposed to any idea, say this quite honestly, any idea about what this was all for, what kind of politics did I want to help to build, what kind of outcomes did I believe in? All right, so, and that's, that's key, isn't it, right? Because we've got, you know, I, I, I was doing something earlier with you, which you like to do, which is to go back in time and read through my old tweets. Um, and what I found was, well, a lot of it was about the EU, uh, and the referendum and all of that. Um, and I reminded myself that I started the um, e-referendum campaign as a lever and then eventually avoid remain. I mean, people are just going to think we're all over the shop, James. I, I, <laughs> to jump in a little bit but, there. But the other thing is that, that quite a lot of what I was tweeting back then, and I think you were the same, was it was all about, you know, what is the strategy for the left to win an election? And there was a lot less, I mean, it wasn't entirely absent, but there was a lot less about, well, what do we do when we actually get there? Um, and just to cut a long story short, what's happened to my politics is that I've realised that there are transform- transformational moments in our politics, like the election of the Labour government in 1945 or the election of Mrs Thatcher in 1979. And then there's, 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 there's what I would call managerialism in politics, which is where... Um, Essentially, the argument is over who's who's better suited on a technocratic level to run the country. There might be minor ideological differences between the two parties, but essentially it's an argument about leadership. It's an argument about um, charisma. Um, it's an argument about who who is the better leader. Um, so, it's a, so it's maybe a more presidential politics, but essentially it's about who's the best captain of the ship. Yeah. With the with the you know the 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 course of the ship pretty much um, known in advance and the parameters within which the ship can sail uh, very much mediated by a media that will call anything that is you know even even sort of normal European social democracy becomes um, loony left unachievable. So you know that's that's where I'm at. And I guess yeah. So my politics is now very different because I think. Uh, the, the big question I would ask um, 
those listening really is is if you are one of these people that thinks it's all about Labour winning election, well, what if you win and your politics has become so empty that you're not going to do anything? I mean, the point of left politics is it actually makes a difference to people's lives. Um, so when I think back to the Blairs, for example, I see, yes, public service spending goes up. Yes, we get the minimum wage. There are a few, you know, significant achievements at the margin. There are things like tax credits. But all of that gets reversed. And actually, at the same time, you have um, you have neoliberalism continuing its march with the public um, finance initiative, public-private partnerships, and all of that. And, there, and, you know, there isn't... What was needed was a reversal of um, some of those neoliberal elements. Um, and we've squandered... I'm sorry, I'm on I'm a bit of a rant, but we've squandered two big opportunities to... Uh, to really transform politics, one after the financial crisis under Miliband, uh, where I think his instincts were more left than he ended up being, but uh, we ended up with the politics of the Ed Stone. Um, and then again, well, we're in the middle of the again, We've, we're in the middle of another crisis, and who have we got running the show? Um, you know, a contentless void that is uh, Mr. Keir Starmer. Sir Keir Starmer. I refuse to call him Sir Starmer. <laughs> Although I guess it would make the you point didn't that call he's, a, him he's, Keith, a, he's a pillar of the establishment, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Um, but I think it's it's important that we don't get too distracted by, in a sense, we, we the danger for the left actually is we end up rerunning or inverting the game that gets played by the by mainstream politicians, and we start commenting on those the personality defects of the various leaders. The issue that the left faces is that um, as a result of the defeat in 2019, the left has been essentially run out of town. You know, it's the, the, it's, the view is not that Jeremy Corbyn was a flawed party leader, which he was. Um, it's that all left politics can only lead to terrible defeat, embarrassment, humiliation, etc., And that the only way um, for the Labour Party to recover is to go back into the um, sensible middle ground that the commentariat have already identified. And crucially, Labour has to participate in the game. And what's really been fascinating to me, and I think the reason I think Starmer is less relevant here is because I think pretty much any leader of the same um, section of the party tends to be regarded as the soft left, but it might, you know, in Starmer's case, actually, it's probably pushing more over to the right. But in any case, what they do is they play the game of um, they they almost start talking through their strategy in public. So you'll see Labour politicians say things like, um, almost well, we're kind of doing this because the voters have stopped listening to us. So we're going to do X and then the voters will start listening to us again. And it's this incredible example of, of you know, what, 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 you, what we tell students, for example, in, in, in their schoolwork is, you know, show not tell. You know, you, you don't just you don't just tell people what you're doing. You actually kind of show it, um, and 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 this is this is what you get with contentless politics. You just get a lot of telling. You get a lot of yes, we are moving to the center ground. That's what we're doing. Can you all see how we're moving to the center ground at the moment? And that gets all of that gets kind of um, commented on by the people who know what all the signals mean, and everybody kind of agrees that that's what's happening. But it's totally con contentless. And and that's the point. It's sort of supposed to be. Everybody agrees that content is kind of a bit gauche in politics. It's a bit weird. 
to talk about policy and ideas. That's really not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to signal to the people who matter where you stand on the spectrum and then basically they'll decide. I'm talking here about senior political journalists. They're the gatekeepers of politics. They'll decide basically whether to let you in or not. And Labour has to kind of keep asking nicely and playing the game until that happens. Now, there are two things I want to observe about that uh, and, and thinking about this question of like, what's the left for? Um, so the first thing is that the obvious problem, if you're if you believe, as, as James has sort of set up this dichotomy at the start, the Labour Party is, is for winning elections. How do you explain what's going on at the moment? Do you think, perhaps you do, that Starmer is right in that he is gradually rebuilding the party and that he is putting it in a position where it could then mount a serious challenge in two or three years' time. It's fine if you do believe that, but at the moment, the polls don't bear that out. There has been an improvement in Labour's position, but it's it's fallen away. And the current polling really puts Labour back where it was in 2019 at the time of its, as we constantly reminded, historic election defeat. So... Well, a slight improvement. Slight improvement. Well, only within the margin of error. I mean, there was saw a poll today, 33% for Labour. That's that's within the margin of error of, of 32%, which they polled and given, in, in and given the fact that we're in the middle of a uh, massive pandemic yeah. and, and all of that, you'd expect um, absent excuses that, that you know, certainly if, if, if somebody like Corbyn was in charge, um, I would expect there to be calls from De Gaulle, not just calls from De Gaulle, but maybe, a, maybe even a full-blown... Um, coup, like we saw. Yeah. Um, you'll know more about the history than I do, because I forget. I forget this history. Uh, how long into his leadership were we when when there was that coup against him? Eight months, and oh. and at that point, Corbyn was level in the polls with Theresa May. And at the very uh, least, with David Cameron, sorry. I guess if if Corbyn was in charge right now, you'd have people sharpening their knives and looking to the local elections and sort of oh, yeah. saying. No, no. This is where we 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 prove that this guy's not fit. Yeah, and, and James, not just a few people. The entire media landscape, yeah. the entire way in which the Labour Party would be being covered right now with this polling is that this would be an embarrassment. This would be proof of everything we told you. How can you be so stupid as to think this was a viable option? You utter morons. Mm. You know, get back to your cave. You don't belong in this. That's what it was. You know, and the, and the reason you and I were were turned off the Corbyn project was because we considered ourselves to be people who were sensible about politics. And we read all the things that people who were sensible about politics, what they were saying, and they told us that this guy didn't fit. So you're, so the, the first problem, and you're beginning to see some political commentators just start to grapple with it, although their answers are all over the place, but you're seeing them just start to kind of panic. Like it's not supposed to look like this. Starmer's actually now been a Labour leader for longer than Corbyn was when he faced that initial challenge in 2016. I don't know how things will go. Maybe that this is a blip and it may it may recover, but but it's not supposed to look like this. So that's my first point. But the second thing I want to talk about is my explanation for that, because I think that's more important. So James talked earlier about these decisive moments in British politics, which reshape um the, the people's understanding of what politics is and what it's for, basically, and what 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 the state should be seeking to achieve. And I agree. I think there have been two transformative moments: forty five and then seventy nine. And you know, I don't think we should we should do this by kind of just like chronological time period. But there's a sense in which we kind of do another one of those, 
and and I think basically we're actually in one, and I think we've probably been in one since two thousand and eight. We've been in a in a process by which the old paradigm of politics has fallen apart, and then a new paradigm is kind of still yet to emerge. And what's what's been really fascinating is that that's now been going on for quite a long time. You know, this paradigm has been in um, has been in you know terminal decline. Um, since the 2008 financial crash. And we have seen, as Gramsci predicted, all kinds of morbid symptoms. We've seen um, particularly the debate around Brexit, which um, really had such a distorting impact on our um, on our whole political discourse in the country. Um, so for me, people who are talking about what the left is for and what the left should be doing in terms of what Tony Blair did in the 1990s, and of course his predecessor, John Smith, who obviously led the party to a significant poll lead, then sadly died and was and was replaced by Tony Blair in 1994. Um, I don't, I'm not the sort, I, I, although I'm on the left, I, I don't reject the idea that there was a successful rebranding that went on mm-hmm. under New Labour. I, I think there's a whole discussion to be had about what was really going on in the 1980s, but let, let's park that for a moment. Let's just assume that, electorally speaking, that the 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 new Labour rebranding had clearly some political impact and 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 enabled um, because we can't run counterfactual historical scenarios. We know that that resulted in actually two um, landslide majorities for the Labour Party. So my issue is is not um, it's not a question of um, did that did that work. It's a question of could it work now. And my view is that essentially we've got too many political journalists who are locked into the paradigm that shaped their political, their, their journey to political maturity through the 1980s and the 1990s. And they and as happens, and this happens, speaking as a historian, this happens in every single period of consensus. The people who are in that consensus forget that there was ever a time when it didn't exist. And they they, they imagine that the rules that govern politics within their period of of historical consensus are in fact permanent rules, and it's it's just a it's just a very familiar cognitive error that people make. So we shouldn't be surprised by it, but we should be asking serious questions about whether those people are really qualified to analyse what's going on now, when that consensus has demonstra- demonstrably demonstrably it's better, isn't it, fallen apart. And the you know COVID has been the last straw, um, and for me, we we have to see what 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 you know where where things go from here. But but for me, the real shock really has been that terrible timidity of the Labour Party over the last year. That really awkward, and it's exactly the tone that I've described. It's do you mind if we kind of say something about this? That really kind of awkward tentative, embarrassed, um, apologetic tone. And it's habitual on that side of the Labour Party because almost the, that's the, 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 the centre and the right of the Labour Party almost exists to tell off the left and remind it that it really shouldn't be anywhere near power, apologise for its existence and try and win credibility. My view is basically the longer that goes on, and this is something James and I have discussed on a on a previous podcast that we that we um, worked on, but it's something I'm sure we'll come back to. the The electoral coalition that drove the success of the Blair years and which Starmer is looking to resurrect 
simply doesn't exist. And so his his strategy will fail and that should be obvious to him. So I want to pick up on two things that you said. First of all, there's this idea of crisis and, and you, you very confidently said that this is the last straw. Now, if I went back in time, if I rewound myself, I would have, you know, in fact, I, I remember standing in front of politics classes and saying, we're in a period of crisis, the financial crisis, and just like happened um, in the 1970s with the post-war consensus, this is a crisis for neoliberalism, it's a crisis for you know, the intellectual zeitgeist of our age, and therefore we would expect that that consensus around, um, you might call it post-Thatcher consensus, will be challenged enough that there is space in politics for something else to emerge. Now, whilst I think that was true, there's nothing inevitable about that, right? So, so it creates um, these two crises. So I think, I think the financial crisis uh, exposes the sort of um, the lie at the centre of market fundamentalism that um, if you just leave things to the market, then, um, you know, the economy will grow and... Uh, yes, there are costs to that in terms of more unequal society, but actually, if you make the cake bigger, you make it bigger for everybody. Well, what actually happens is that at the end of that period, uh, you have a massive financial crash, um, and and the, the the sort of fallout of that is uh, a conservative government in this country elected, and indeed um, across Europe, committed to austerity, and so you get um, the evisceration of public services and the welfare state. And, and also, even this idea that, that neoliberalism is supposed to deliver economic growth, well, it doesn't even do that. Because uh, if you compare, um, if you compare the, sort of, um, the, the, the period of that track consensus with the post-war consensus, actually we grew more um, when we were in, that, in, the, in the post-war consensus period and we had a more equal society. Um, so then, so, 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 and then the second crisis crisis caused by COVID, um, it exposes, um, you know, because essentially what, what happens under camera is they double down on neoliberalism um, and they say, this is a crisis of um, of debt, of, of reckless public spending. And what we need to do is we need to, uh, we need to double down. We need to be more Thatcherite than Thatcher. And the, the current crisis that we find ourselves in exposes what that does, right? It leaves our public sector completely unprepared, underfunded. Um, it means that people who are at the bottom of society are uh, not managing. I think this is the truth of the matter. But, um, you know, the, 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 the response and the response from the Conservative Party is to panic, essentially, because, because, because they know how close to the edge everybody is. And so the reason we've had this massive... Uh, increase in spending from the government, not enough, I would argue, of course, is so that um, is so that the reality of the welfare state, which of course is that it's not fit for purpose at the moment after savage cuts, isn't exposed to everybody, and so they they bring in the furlough scheme so that people don't have to experience the benefit system because if, because if too many people experience the benefit system, then it's going to be obvious to everybody that 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 what austerity has done. Um, so so the Tories, I think, are aware. That crisis is a threat to them, and and the reason they're aware of it, by the way, is because their whole project began in a period of crisis that they successfully uh, took advantage of. So this is the other point I wanted to make, which is about well, how do you do that? How do you take advantage? So so if we if we think about neoliberalism, which is now the dominant um, political ideology of uh, the age, 
um, certainly in this country and, and, more, and more broadly. Um, if we went back to the 1950s and 1960s, the neoliberals were regarded as absolute cranks by everybody. And um, and they, what they had to do was to build um, build their movement through things like think tanks, um, through publishing academic papers, getting funding from people like the Cork Brothers in America. Um, there's some there's some very good literature around this, particularly in the, in, in the American context by um, Perlstein, who writes about the um, the the rise of the new right in in America. And there's a great documentary series about this in the UK called Tory, Tory, Tory. But essentially the story that, that those, those books and, and documentaries tell is that these guys were cranks. They were in the wilderness um, and Thatcherism was an, a successful example of using a period of crisis to completely reshape co- politics in the sense that you go from being a, being a crank out in the, in the wilderness to being the undisputed orthodoxy that if anybody challenges it, you're the crank, right? So so, so, I'm coming back to the question that we're supposed to be talking about, which is what is politics for the left about? Well, the politics for the left should be about doing exactly the same thing and maybe learning some lessons from the neoliberals because what they managed to do is what we want to do. We want, um, at the very least... We should be trying to take politics back to the post-war consensus period, back to a more equal society, but where, by the way, we were growing faster than we are now. Um, so, so, so that's a lie. Um, and if we're not trying to do that, well, what the hell are we trying to do? Because, because if politics isn't that, if politics isn't even what the right understand it to be, then it's just a game of, you know, who's... What colour is our ship going to be? Is it going to be red or blue? You know, it's like, what's the point? Uh, we can have Captain Keir Starmer or Captain, um, you know, the other guy. I don't want to mention his name. The one that doesn't even comb his hair when he goes on television. So that's where I, that's where I'm at. Yeah, I mean, I'm just loving these rants, James. They, they, you're, you know, you're fired. You're fired up. I don't mean you're fired. I mean, in a good way. You're You're pumped. And I think... It's really great listening to you because I think it, it it's a reminder that um, you need an analysis to understand politics now that that actually stretches beyond the current period. You know, to, you're, you're, uh, there's no it's no good trying to understand what's happening in politics at the moment just with reference to the kind of the conditions of what James has referred to as the kind of neoliberal era, so the Thatcherite era and beyond. Um, because you're kind of it's 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 I suppose just thinking you know metaphor on the hoof it's the it's you can't see the wood for the trees you know you're just you're just in that world you 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 can't see how it was constru- constructed so I think that's crucial and I think when we take that approach we can start to recognise that if you're on the left you're part of a much longer struggle. Mm. struggle that actually goes back centuries not just decades and actually if we go back to the quotation from which we began with which we began this this episode and which gives us our name other men have to fight for what they meant under another name that's that's the ultimate challenge for the left now we are the ones who have to pick up that fight um and 
we have to do it in the context of the time of now. So we, we have to be conscious of the current conditions, but we mustn't be dictated to by them. So that means that when people say to you, oh, you can't possibly do X or you, you shouldn't really do Y because politics doesn't work like that. Just ignore them. Just ignore them. Don't take them seriously. Don't let people tell you. That would be my kind of number one takeaway probably from this episode. Just don't let people tell you that politics works like X. Because essentially, as an historian, what I would say to you is that politics always works like X until it starts working like Y. And when it starts working like Y, everybody says politics works like Y. Of course it doesn't work like X. You've got to be ready, right? Yes. So so what the... Well, what all periods of, um, of of crisis tell us, and and you could you could go into uh, some of the revolutionary periods, but certainly the crisis of the nineteen seventies, they're waiting. They've got their yes. ideas. They've got their think tanks. Um, they've got their politicians. That sort of the right of the Conservative Party, which is a fringe at the time. The majority of the Conservative Party when Thatcherism begins is uh, in the One Nation tradition, and they're here to. Uh, you know, which is walk, which is walking around the House of Commons. They call her Hilda. Um, she represents Gross's daughter. Exactly, there's yeah. a, and there's a sort of class-based um, uh, disdain for her, as well as the fact that she's a woman. Um, you know, so when people call Thatcher a revolutionary, in, in a sense, she is. She revolutionises the Conservative Party. Certainly, yeah. she revolutionises the country. She is a revolutionary. She's, the problem is she's a revolutionary on the right. But the point is that you know she's ready. And yeah. she's ready because they've done their work, um, and 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 they've done their work, not worrying about the fact that everybody regards them as cranks, not worrying about the time frame because they begin their work. Uh, you might I mean, in the fifties, I, I think. Well, well maybe even before. earlier. Maybe yeah. with, maybe with the publication of of uh, Hayek's Road to Serfdom, yeah. or maybe even earlier than that, with 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 some of the other work going on. But the, and they're organised. And they're, they're a very small group as well, actually. That's the other thing. That's the, the Montpellier Society, a very small group of, 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 of neoliberal uh, thinkers. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, this was a realisation that came to me just a, f- a few weeks ago, which is why I'm talking about it a lot. But, but, you know, it makes me almost want to wear the fact that my own political beliefs have become, you know, what people would regard as loony left, completely beyond the pale, you know, I'm happy to wear that as a badge of honour because actually, at least I understand how politics works. Um, and if, if you know, if, if if you're not preparing for the crisis, I mean, you know, we're in the the crisis, so it's a bit well. It's, no, it's unless you're preparing for what comes next. Yeah. Then what are you doing? What are you I mean, doing? I can go just return just return to that point. But and can, can I just jump in on that where you mentioned the loony left because I I brought you up on that earlier and you kind of said, well, no, I I want to wear that as a badge of honour. But the point I guess I would make as well as if you look at the cartoons of the loony left in the 1980s, right, which is where that kind of comes from, if you, there's, there's some really good examples. I mean, they're horrible t- to look at, but they're also really instructive. If you look at kind of uh, a, a tabloid caricature of the loony left, who's in it? Black people are in it. Black um, um, civil rights activists are in it. Um, gay rights activists are in it. Um you know, feminazis or whatever that, you know. So in other words, the kind of people who actually now we recognise are right at the forefront of the struggle and whose rights desperately need to be heard, but are also increasingly respected, are regarded as absolutely ludicrous. The idea that you would fight for these people and these things is just absurd. Yeah, so the, 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 the intention of the cartoons is to put people like Tony Benn next to... Yes. 
LGBT people who are fighting for their rights yes. in order to say, look at these guys, they're fighting for something that's absolutely crazy. And, and, and sort of also like a bit disgusting. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that from which you can draw real strength. That actually, I think it's worth saying that that work has, all, has begun. I don't think the left is totally unprepared for what's coming up, despite the defeat of 2019. I think that there was, a, there was definitely an expectation that the left was done in 2019. There was, there was a lot of gloating about it. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, merriment at the, at the imminent demise of groups like Momentum, the various media organisations, left media organisations that had sprung up in the Corbyn years, um, the, the, the re-release, relaunch of newspapers like or magazines like Tribune. All of this stuff was basically essentially like, ha, well, bad luck, guys, you had a go. It's all over. Now, what has happened in the year since? Those movements have blossomed. They are they are growing at the moment, those organisations. Um, and, and now, why are they growing? I think this, this really gets us into kind of, okay, well, what are we trying to do then from a left perspective? They're growing because, yes, there's a pandemic, which has been spectacularly bad, badly handled, and which has... And which actually has exposed, as James has said, the failures of state policy, not only in the past year, but in the previous 10 years. Um, But actually, in a way, that only really that that can be as much a a boost for kind of managerial politics. You know, Starmer would sort of run it better. You know, that that would you know, that that can just as easily go in that direction. But because you've had this decade of austerity, there is a whole generation of people who are economically marginalised as well as um, in many other cases that, you know, that, that, that intersects with other, you know, injustices and inequalities uh, that make their lives harder. So there are loads of people for whom um, the kind of the supposed benefits of neoliberalism have definitely not appeared. I'm, I'm thinking here particularly about people who are paying high private rents, um, people who are, who are working in jobs that are insecure, um, that maybe have um, zero hours contracts or are just incredibly stressful and are you know are, are kind of like target based and um, you know, therefore a source of relentless anxiety when your wage is basically the only way you can pay your high rents and your high bills etc. So essentially, like it starts to feel like if you're not basically propertyed, you know, if you if you're not if you don't belong to a family where your you know your parents own property and, and you're kind of like you can get a relatively secure start or you've got a fallback position, essentially your life feels quite conditional. It's kind of like. You're allowed the access to the means of survival as long as you keep going in this very, very stressful working environment um, where you're, you know, you're really having to kind of like hustle all the time. Um, And for a lot of people, that's, you know, that becomes hard to square with the illusion that neoliberalism has delivered all of this kind of plenty and, um, and prosperity. To, to, to their society. They can see that there are people who are benefic- you know, massive beneficiaries from the system, but they're probably paying rent for them. They're probably paying off those people's mortgage. You know, it's you, yeah. many times over. So just to finish my point, um, that, that's where the opportunity lies for the left because, because it's done the kind of intellectual work and there's an audience there. The question is, and the challenge is, how do you connect that audience who are living these lives where actually they're not paying much attention to politics, right? Because I'm not talking here about kind of like hyper-engaged, I don't know, university undergraduates who are really mo- motivated by political struggle. I'm talking about people whose lives are just difficult 
um, because of the material conditions of the last 30, 40 years, but who don't necessarily think in political terms and won't engage unless somebody speaks directly to them. And the opportunity for the left is the realisation of this moment that the politics of the Starmer um, leadership team cannot possibly speak to them and never will. Yeah. So even, even if you just believe in democracy, even if you think that um, it's better for the Labour Party to be more quote-unquote electable, whatever that means in, in, in this context, you should still realise that the, 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 the tactics of this leadership team literally deprive a large section of the population of any meaningful engagement with politics. And those people are the most deprived. So if you're serious about democracy, regardless, to be honest, of your attitude to the left, that should worry you. Yeah, and, there's a, and, and the issue with a politics that is prescribed and limited within a fixed set of parameters by you know, what the media are going to accept as being an acceptable political opinion or what political strategists are going to accept as being, you know... Um, sensible. Sensible. The problem with that is... Capital that S. You've got a whole generation of people, and it's quite a big group actually now, because I, mean, I was just thinking as you were speaking, Joe, about I was born in 1985. Likewise. So, so all I've ever known is I've only ever lived through, you know, the... the the period we're talking about. I've lived in the neoliberal age. And so, you know, when I read books about, um, uh, or I look at data, because that's how I think, I think in terms of data, when I look at data about the Gini coefficient being 10 points lower and um, trade unions fighting for 17% pay rises and, you know, people getting involved in these um, really exciting um, and uh, eventually successful political campaigns for the rights of women, for the rights of LGBT people, for the rights of black people, etc. You know, all of that's really exciting. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, I, I grew up in an age where politics was was a much more prescribed business of yeah. of sort of, you know, you join a political party, you knock on a few doors. And to be honest, I've, I think somewhere in the back of my mind, I've always felt, well, that's a bit dull. And the reason why, you know, I'm obsessed with politics, but the reason why I've never really got involved with the politics of the political party is I've, I always went along uh, and this was both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party I went along to the meetings and I went well what the hell are we all doing here is this all there is is this we're either going to you know in the, the Labour Party is a little bit different because in the Labour Party you get sort of a, you know angry people wanting to debate things and, and pass motions and that feels to me utterly futile um, but there's nothing more futile than um <laughs> Knocking on the door, in the you know going around the neighbourhood in the local council elections, trying to get somebody to vote for Keir Starmer's Labour Party. I mean, could, is there anything that could be more empty than that? You know. So I look back at a period that I didn't know because I wasn't alive, and I imagine lots of young people do. And this is the point I'm coming onto: a politics that's increasingly defined by how old we are is not just about class; it's also about. Um, Young people see the realm of political possibility that isn't prescribed. Yes. And they go, well, hang on a second. Why can't I go to university without getting into massive amounts of debt? Why can't I, uh, you know, have secure rent? Why can't we cap rent? Why can't we have trade unions 
that fight for people in precarious work? Why can't yeah. we have a decent wage for everybody? Why can't we have a universal basic income? Why can't we have uh, decent care for the elderly? Because it's not just about the concerns for the young. Um, why can't we have uh, black people who don't have to face structural racism? Why can't we deal with the climate crisis? Why can't we? Why can't yeah. we? Why can't we? And the reason we can't is because that's not sensible. Hmm. And because the Labour Party... It did it on Jeremy Corbyn, but, well, what happened to Jeremy Corbyn? The press went after him because it wasn't sensible. People are frustrated with all of that, and, you know, this isn't going away. Yeah. It's not going away because, uh, you know, politics has to be about more than, you know, the sensible middle ground where everything's decided in advance. And And nothing's really at stake. And I think, you know, James, you said just now you know, politics was about joining a political party. Well, actually, of course, no, it wasn't. I mean, if you look at the membership figures... Me. Well, yeah, right. Yeah, well, you know, we, we, for Can't listeners... by-election, For listeners of these po- these podcasts, do need to appreciate that James and I are both quite weird in different ways. And, and, and James more so in the kind of political anarchy type way. But actually, you know, both of us are a bit like that. But of course, so my point is a serious one, right? You You actually weren't supposed to join political parties in this in this era it was it was supposed to be a bit techy and boring because you know they didn't really want you there you know the the, the whole point of the new neoliberal era is politics was just something that was left to the people who really knew what they were doing and they would sort everything out and they all basically agreed that their intentions were good and that there were all these quite dangerous um you know scary um you know i'm thinking working class people particularly Whose, whose voices really needed to be kept out of the political landscape as much as possible, really. Um, so that, that defined the politics of our, of our age. And it's why so many working class people are still incredibly tentative about coming back into politics because mm. they think, well, we're not really supposed to be there. And, and I think it's really important to remember that when we're talking about this idea of like the expectations being set, particularly for those of us who were, I think, who did come to political maturity in the 80s and 90s, it was absolutely the case that the mindset of that era was, there is no alternative. This is the only way it can be. And and actually, in a way, we've sort of worked it out. Like there were political tensions and struggles before, um, but they've they've been won. They've been sorted. And now it's really just about kind of um, managing the way to the 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 agreed set of outcomes um, of that of that process, and and kind of you know just dealing with some of the um, the, the the problems and you're know, trimming some of the issues that had maybe emerged, but actually you know fundamentally everybody was going to get richer, people's rights were going to be recognised and respected as needed, um, and anything else was just showboating. Um, and I'm, I, I mentioned this to James earlier, and I, I want to mention it again now, I think. I think for the left right now, in terms of we, we need to find something that we can look at as, as representing the way in which we might start to talk about change. And I would actually look at something like Occupy from 2010, the Occupy movement. It was actually a global movement, um, although you know, there, was a, there was a significant um, Occupy movement within London. Um, it was kind of largely derided by the press at the time. It's still mostly derided today, but it was probably a starting point for the emergence of left politics again 
in the 2010s and it and it was very much a response to the financial crisis and the and the deep inequalities that that not only revealed but also then further entrenched because governments um imposed the costs of dealing with those crises on ordinary working class people not on the people who'd actually caused them and i think much of the the kind of um animating ideology of that movement is something that could be recaptured partly because it was quite anarchic mm. it was it was quite messy you know there were, there was all kinds of debate about whether or not people should be moved on from the tents that were sort of um erected outside st paul's cathedral it it, it you know the respectable opinion was kind of slightly appalled by it there was a lot of mocking of of the people involved as either kind of crusty old lefties or naive students you know my my kind of animating belief about politics right now is not to get drawn into that game of um of trying to work out ways to appeal to to these people that we've talked about who are essentially gate who imagine themselves to be the gatekeepers of politics because basically my view is their time is up essentially and funnily enough i think brexit probably finished it you know brexit was the sort of thing where the gatekeepers of politics said absolutely not not allowed you know we you know we're not we're not having it and it happened and you know as much as i personally opposed it and i i was against brexit right throughout the process when i look back on it now I can see that it was absolutely something that that shook the foundations of 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 our politics and it shook the authority of of that 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 group of opinion formers and I don't think we're going to go back to the time when you know because that because it was a narrow window that they that they were that they dominated I think I think that era is over and I think basically my last point on this is when you're thinking about solutions don't look at this at the way in which politics worked before don't look for solutions from the 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 old model because you won't find anything there you in other words when you're looking for a leader who's that leader going to look like the only thing i can tell you for sure is they're definitely not going to look like the leaders of the last 30 years if if you're choosing someone like Keir Starmer you're 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 imagining that you can you can drive a change to something completely new from somebody who embodies the system as it currently is that is not going to happen so i don't know who that leader is or what they're going to look like i don't know what those movements are or what they're going to look like what i can tell you is they won't look like politics for the last 20 years and then, so i can also tell you that when they emerge people will say uh look at these horrible movements that's not really how politics is supposed to be of course they will say that because because it's scary um and because everything they everything they hold dear rests on there's nothing worse for these people and you saw glimpses of it in the corbyn years that it must have been a sort of sickening realization all those years they'd said you can't possibly win electoral backing of any kind with this platform in 2017 Jeremy Corbyn polls 40% he adds 10 points to labor's um elect or 10 10% to labor's election tally from the previous election 10 percentage points 10 percentage points are made a hash of that from 2015 uh, and it's the it's the highest vote share for labor since 2001 um but uh, you know It, what what's what's key for me is that it was possible for a, a labor left platform 
to really galvanize a section of the electorate and actually to still hold together larger parts of Labour's coalition who it was assumed would be turned away by that platform. Now, where do you go from there if you're one of these gatekeepers? Because everything, you, the whole point was you can't do those things because you'll 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 be hammered electorally. So so where do you go now? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to get bogged down in strategy, right? But no. even in strategic terms, you don't do what Starmer's doing because you know. And and yes, no, I, know, totally I don't agree. I don't want to get bogged down in talking about strategy because because be, partly because for strategic reasons is not it's not a good idea because. What ends up happening in in on Twitter and you know, which is which tends to be where these discussions take place is that somebody on the left will say something, and you know somebody on the right will say, "Well, how is that going to go down in the red wall?" Or they'll, uh, yeah. or they'll say, you know, or they'll they'll show you an opinion. You know, and politics isn't about strategy. You know, it partly is. Of course, the left want to want to win power so we can make change happen. So of course we do. And what we would say is, if, fine, if we do want to talk about strategy, how are you going to win back people? And it's not just by not being Jeremy Corbyn. Like, you've got to actually tell people some stuff that they want to happen. Um, so... Well, you've uh, got to have animating ideas. Yeah, you've got... Well, the next election is going to be about change, right? That's what, that's what I think. Um, and I think that because um, we are... We, we've experienced a period of crisis... Lots of people will have realised actually that um, that the the, the, the the welfare state is not fit for purpose. Lots of people, the polling tells us, do support pay rises of public workers. Um, lots of people uh, will have really struggled during this period and will realise actually that austerity did damage the public sector. You know, I think there's a lot going on, um, and there's a real opportunity for for Starmer. I mean, I think we disagree about this a little bit because you were. You were saying that you were you're a bit too negative about Keir Starmer. If Keir Starmer uh, understood what was going on a little bit, uh, he doesn't need to be particularly charismatic. I think it is beneficial to him that he's not Jeremy Corbyn because Corbyn ended up not being very popular because he was vilified by the press and therefore it was a, a net negative for Labour in uh, 2019 in the end. Uh, all Starmer had to do, and all he still has to do because it's not too late, is say something. Like actually say something that is... Uh, about change, but, but, uh, and sorry, if he James, does, but, yeah, Labour's poll rating will go up. But Starmer, just, Starmer thinks will. it's a card game. That's what he thinks it is. Well, I know, he I, thinks, I'm not suggesting he thinks, he's going to do it, right, John. But like, no, but no, but the point, the important, key, the point here is, of course, he thinks it's a card game because everybody around him, mm. the whole, all the politics that he learned was that it was but a card game. What and of course, saying, he, right? and, 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 so I don't want to interrupt you. These bits are good in the podcast. No, but, we, we talk well, I, well I'm going to keep fighting no, you. But, 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 but that's precisely the point I was making. <laughs> even if it is a card game, and you agree with oh, me yeah, about yeah. this, yeah, yeah. he doesn't even know how to play the card no, game. No, but hang like, on. Even if we like, accepted, oh, politics is just about strategy, just about winning the next election, we should do what it takes to win the next election. This is not what you would do. Yeah, no, totally right. But, but, but... Is Starmer good at the card game? Well, he certainly played it really well between 2016 and 2019. He certainly positioned himself incredibly yeah. well to win that Labour leadership election, um, to, to win over large numbers of Corbyn supporters because he'd been so strongly associated with people's vote, which was something that many Labour members felt very strongly about. And he'd also carefully avoided being a, a, a critical voice of, of, of the leadership while he served in the shadow cabinet. So he he can play the game insofar as it's navigating within a kind of familiar landscape like the the, the Labour membership. But what's uh, you know what's unfamiliar to Starmer 
is actually the conditions of the of the country as a whole because they because politically they don't mirror those of of 20 or 30 years ago so that's why i made the point that i that i don't think he could ever grasp it well and it's partly because uh, i'm just thinking back to the rant i had earlier where i said yeah. why can't politics be about x y and z the reason i'm able to just say that off the cuff without really thinking about it and for lots of sensible ideas to come out oh. is because because i'm not worrying about yeah. How my ideas are going to land. I'm not worried about that. I'm not concerned about that. I, I have political convictions. I understand that politics is about changing things. And if you don't agree with me, well, fine. Don't vote for me. Um, yeah. and I'm not for election. <laughs> I don't think I do very well if I was for time, election. But, like, time, but yeah. Starmer's fundamental thinking is, how's this going to land? Like, that's the first thought. Like he's not, he's, he, you know... If I, I was thinking about this earlier today, if I was trying to convince Keir Starmer to change his position on uh, nurses' pay, I wouldn't say wouldn't say to him, Keir, it's the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah. I'd say the polling tells us that 52% of people support higher nurses' pay, and, and we're talking about higher than 2.1%. So you should shift position because that's what people want. And that would work because that's all he cares about. Well, it obviously doesn't work. And I think that's really important. Well, who's having those conversations? Well, presuma- well the, the guy can read a newspaper. I mean, presumably he, you know, but so that, but that's why I think what I said, it matters because it, what's, isn't that fascinating that even, cause yeah, I think the strategy is obvious. Like, I don't even think you need to be a, you know, it's, I, I've thought this for a year. I was, and, and, you know, a lot of the difficulty I've had with politics is just like really dealing with this problem of like, why are these people who I assume are very intelligent, not following this, this path that just seems obvious to me. And you have to think, okay, we're not just dealing with, you know, this This really takes, I think we've got to a really good point here, this takes us to the underlying lie of neoliberalism and the, and the, and the centrist middle ground, which is that it's not ideological. It's yeah. a problem-solving p- policy position or a problem-solving worldview. You know, we just want what works. Mm. Well, that's obviously not true because austerity was, came from that middle ground and that didn't work. Certainly didn't, you know, well, actually didn't but, work particularly. You're no, no, slipping oh. into the same middle ground, right? We established earlier in the podcast that the yeah. the ideas that govern our society at the moment are radical ideas. No, no, listen. Yeah, yeah, listen. I, of course I ground accept ground. that, but I'm talking yeah. about, yeah, I'm talking about what is as a self-referential middle ground, right? right. So the, the people who are in it think of it as the middle yeah. ground, right? But And what they think above all else, actually, it's they're probably their most animating thought, probably the only animating thought is we are not ideological. People on the left are ideological, people on the right are ideological. We're in the middle. We're the sensible. We're the sensible ones. But but and here you have a situation where those sensible um opinion formers are have a, have an obvious route to building the new e- e- electoral coalition out of the current crisis and they don't take it. Now and the reason for that is very simple and it's 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 fine by the way. They're ideological. That's okay. It's okay to be ideological. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with the fact that someone like Keir Starmer actually doesn't really think the state should be paying nurses a 15% pay increase. He, he actually probably doesn't think they should. Now, he, now he's never had to actually explain that view because the because that's that's where this electability thing comes in. It it actually walls off a whole load of political questions. You never even have to ask them. Oh, it's 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 not electable. You don't even have to get to the point of do I actually think this is true or not. So this has been the kind of dodge 
of this of this new uh, you know this this centrist consensus is that, is that you pretend that you're very pragmatic and you're deciding things on the basis of electability but in reality you actually do have a set of ideological convictions and you you then yeah. decide that those are that you've decided you've chosen them because they're sensible and pragmatic and you can um you can win public support from them and so that's where Jeremy Corbyn's um progress in 2017 i'm not going to call it success but progress in 2017 it was significant um that's where it's really important in helping us to understand you know the 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 people who who are around starmer now let's be honest probably didn't want jeremy corbyn to win that election they didn't believe in the ideas that 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 took him to that position we know that obviously to some extent from the um from the leaks that came out from the party this year and which may or may not appear in the ford inquiry which is set to publish uh, at some point this year. Um, so I think that is such an important realization. It's 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 that the fundamental claim of um, of the neoliberal era, which is that it defeated ideology, that it banished it from the political realm, was a fraud. And just coming back to the Keir Starmer thing on on Nurses' Pay, because it's really annoyed me. It was a real possibility. Sorry, a real opportunity for him, right? So, so you get this really popular um, thing emerging from the unions. We want to pay rise for nurses who are literally at the front line, regarded as heroes during this crisis. I don't, I don't use the language of heroism myself. I think they were they were doing the right thing. They were doing their jobs, and and I think the reason I'm, I don't like the language of heroism, by the way, is because I think everybody deserves a pay rise, and I don't think you need to be heroic to deserve one. Yeah, and also, can I just um, say that? So, just to jump in quickly, James, on that. You you good? Yeah, uh, yeah. We're still working this out, like the interrupting thing, but we'll, we'll go with it. Bus drivers are heroes. If we're talking about nurses yeah, yeah, as heroes, yeah. bus drivers, you know, supermarket. But we shouldn't be stackers. talking about no. Anything. Fine, but I right. but they but, they, but the, you point, know, the point is, Starmer could have said, "Look, what we're seeing here is is that people are underpaid, and yes, our nurses are underpaid, but so is everybody yeah. because actually, real wages." have been very, very, the, the growth in real wages has been very, very uh, low. And in actual fact, uh, if you compare real wages to what they were like uh, just before the financial crisis, they've barely grown at all. If I need to look at the data, but it's terrible, right? So, so, there's a, so and that, you know, if you're telling me that's not going to resonate with people who literally haven't had a pay rise yeah. in the last, uh, how long has it been since the financial crisis now? Or 12, 13 years, yeah. Like, like, like what's he playing at? Mm. You know, uh, so he had an opportunity to broaden out something that's already popular into um, a broader debate about pay and about what people deserve to be paid that would be popular. Um, and he dodged it, and he dodged it because uh, I think he's frightened of supporting the unions because uh, he sees that as him being um, too left-wing for what the media would take. He would be charged with being in the pocket of the unions. He doesn't it's believe a in it. thing. He doesn't, he believe, doesn't in it, believe in it. No, no, you don't need anything else, James. You don't need anything else. Why doesn't he back the unions? Because he doesn't really believe that trade unions are the the the, the fundamental line right, of defence the... for workers. And so, and so, of course, he comes in and says, "Oh yes, I'm afraid." You know, as much as I love the trade unions, because I'm because I'm of course committed to the labour movement. Sadly, yeah, voters don't won't the, wear the, it. The point I was going to make is that is that people say that Corbyn failed. He did fail to win an election, right? So if that's all that politics is about, yeah, he failed. Yeah. He wasn't able to deliver his programme. What did he achieve? 
that, that Blair didn't achieve, by the way. Yeah. And that's a really important comparison. Um, you know, if you shuffle around that chair, you think. I, I was, I was actually going to start. You know, like what in, he, what you know, he... like in gospel music where they start, like I was almost like I was going to, you know, just that echo of praise yeah. behind you as you're speaking. I know what you're about to say. Yeah, the, the point, and it's so important. The point, the point is, he moves politics to the left. Now, in actual, can fact, we just back I'm gonna, that up? I'm going to finish it. Finish this here because I think we've gone on for almost an hour. That Blair does the opposite. So yeah. there's, there's there's some polling from um, Curtis from John Curtis um, from a, from an article he publishes in the, in the nineties. Uh, public opinion when Blair took over the Labour Party in 1994 was very very strongly in favour of increasing public spending, and Blair, strategic genius that he is, shifts the party to the right, and actually people follow him. And the reason why there wasn't um, a strong consensus for increased public sector, sorry, public service pay is because they followed Blair because part of what politics is about is shifting public opinion. So, you know, I think that, you know, people will, will look back at Corbyn, people who are sensible will look back at Corbyn and say, well, he did achieve something. He shifted politics to the left. He shifted politics to a position. I mean, imagine this pandemic if Corbyn hadn't existed. Would the Conservative Party have felt compelled to do the right thing with furlough? Or do we really think that? Would the Conservative Party have felt compelled to talk about levelling up? Would any of this be happening in politics? I really don't think it would have. And the reason it's happened is because Corbyn has moved the country, uh, moved politics to move the centre ground to the left. And Starmer is desperately trying to do the opposite of that, and that's infuriating. Last word to you, John, and then we'll finish up. It's worth um, finding the, the Corbyn speech that he delivers in Parliament um, on, on the need for a really effective um, government program to support the public through the through the crisis. Because I, when I watched that, I watched it, I think today, um, you can almost see someone like Rishi Sunak and, 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 or Matt Hancock kind of listening, going, oh yeah, no, no, we're going to have to do this. You know, and actually it's very rare that you ever see Jeremy Corbyn attended to quite carefully by the Conservative front bench. But there's, there's no doubt in my mind that that's, that there's, there's, there's a force behind that. Um, and you know, for me, you know, if you ever believed that 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 left wing politics was this kind of, you know, potentially, you know, um, uh, almost dangerous threat to our to you know the national public order and so on, just look at the last five years of British politics. The right have dominated it. It's been an absolute car crash, and I think you know the opportunity for the left lies in there. Um, that, that people have really, you know, this, these in these morbid symptoms, a, a huge proportion of the electorate have woken up to the fact that politics does have alternatives. It's not true that there is no alternative to the to the status quo. The challenge is going to be developing the practical um, uh, methods and, and and movements that can drive that change. Um, but as I say, it's not going to look like what it looked like before. We're going to need to find um, politicians and movements who are willing to act under another name. Okay, well, that's a nice place to wrap it up. Please do subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Twitter, and we will see you next week. <laughs>